talking about an irresistible community of love, and an irresistible community of love is a group of people that have agreed on the highest level, covenanted together, to keep their conscience clear, uh, void of offense before God and man, and to keep their hearts tender, eager, willing to extend forgiveness even before it's asked. Those are two pieces that are really important. Community of of irresistible love would be made up of people that had covenanted together to keep their conscience clear and to keep their hearts tender for people that might have hurt them. Uh, because, and we do this because of our fidelity to Christ. Because like the song we just sang, Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are my king. Because of, I want to honor you. And one of the ways Jesus said to honor him was to watch over our own conscience and keep it pure and to be willing to extend forgiveness to people who hurt us. And so this is quite a, quite a family talk that we're going to have here, here today. And a few years ago, it was 2006, in October of 2006, there was this horrible tragedy that took place in Nickel Mine, Pennsylvania. Maybe you remember. A deranged man barricaded himself in a little school. Of all places, an Amish schoolhouse and took the life of five little girls between 6 and 12 years old. Took the lives of five little girls. It was a horrifying, horrifying uh, evil that was done. But what really shocked the world, as you know, was that the Amish community from which those girls, where they were raised, immediately began to reach out to the family of the murderer who also killed himself. They immediately begin to reach out to the family in love and in mercy and in forgiveness and in kindness. And consistently, the entire community in, then reached out in, in love. And, they, and, and around the world, the story was, how in the world could these people forgive such a heinous evil? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that these people, in their own way, were trying to obey the commands of Christ. They're trying just to live out exactly what Christ said to do. And that is to extend forgiveness to people who, who uh, don't deserve it. And that really is the mission of the church, is to make Christ known. The mission of the church, really, if you think about it, we look at our world, and we'd love to have enough votes to change some things, wouldn't we? Wouldn't it be nice to have enough votes to change some things? Wouldn't it be nice to have enough political clout to make things different than they are? And it would be tempting for us as a church to say, let's just try to do what we can as a political action committee, as a group, to kind of make things better in the world. But that isn't really, according to the teaching of Jesus, not our calling. It isn't. Or, or So, you know, the church isn't a political action committee, as tempting as that can be. That's not our job. Our job is to be a faithful witness of the person and teaching of Jesus Christ. And in that particular act of, of forgiveness uh, in that Amish community, I think, even though they didn't get any laws changed, and they didn't, they didn't, personally prosecute anyone, they, they were a faithful witness to the teaching of Jesus Christ, the teaching of forgiveness. And it would be good for us to think that way. The mission of the church, the mission of our church really, is not even to, to save people. 
Because it's God who saves people. It's the mission of the church to give a witness of Christ as a part of what God uses to save people. And so it's not even our job to, to, to be a certain size or to, or to accomplish a certain thing, but simply to be faithful as a witness, and this is how. So if we take Jesus seriously, what I'm saying is if we take the teaching of Jesus seriously, we really want to honor him with our lives, then these are two of the things that have to be a part of that. And one is that I watch over my heart, especially have I hurt other people. And then secondly, I watch over my heart. Am I, am I willing to extend mercy uh, to people who have hurt me. So I have a couple of messages that go together here in this series, which, which uh, goes through the 17th of May. But the, the next two, today's and, and next week, the goal of the message today is just to, that we would admit when we have wronged other people, especially in the body of Christ, in the, in the church, and that we would do all that we can to seek forgiveness and to reconcile and to talk about why that's important and how to do it. That's what we'll do today. And then Next Sunday, Lord willing, on Mother's Day, I think my mom would be pleased uh, if she knew that I was saying, telling you, teaching you, the goal of that message would be that we would be in a position to forgive other people who have hurt us. It's just that real simple. So the overall goal is that our families and our church would be characterized by humility, characterized by confession, characterized by mercy, that we'd be a faithful witness of who Jesus is. I'm a dad, proud of that, grateful for that. Father of eight, can you imagine? Four boys, four girls. We got quite a tribe going now. They're starting to marry and, and have children. A big part, and they love each other. They love each other desperately, passionately. They would probably, is, is your family like this? They would, sometimes you think they're going to kill each other, but they would quickly kill for each other. I'm not sure that's good. I'm just saying that's kind of, in our family, there's a great, great intense love for one another. To, to be candid about it, though, I feel like for years, so 35 years of marriage, we have to be kind of a referee sometimes or, or a peacemaker, helping everybody get along, helping everybody understand one another. Chuck says to me, Dad, you remember that time with the Harry Ketzel? Yeah, I remember Harry. He lived across the street from us. He, he was endowed with a hairy chest. I'll just share that with you. Uh, it's part of the story. I would not burden you with that information. And uh, Chuck says when they were little, his older brother was goading him into shouting Harry Pretzel to Harry Ketzel, who was across the street mowing his lawn and doing some yard work. When I came home, you know, I, I want to be a testament of the neighbors. I thought, oh, if my kids are mocking the neighbors, that's not good. So I says to Chuck, he's really little, you're going to go over there and you're going to ask Mr. Ketzel his forgiveness for calling him a name. You don't call adults a name. So I trooped Chuck over there. He has a really good memory of stuff like this. I trooped Chuck over there, and he says, Mr. Ketzel, I want to ask your forgiveness for the name that I called you. Mr. Ketzel says, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the name. What was it you called me? <laughs> and Chuck says, he looks at me like, mm, did you didn't even hear this. So he had to tell me, the little Chuck over there going, I called you Harry Pretzel. So the guy laughs, you know. Chuck wanted me to... He wanted to remind me of that. That only happened like 25 years ago. But I feel like for the 35 years of my marriage and the years of my parenting, one of my jobs has been just to help people get along, to be a peacemaker. And I'm a pastor, and so, uh, and we're high octane. I mean, we're Baptist folks, so Baptists are high octane. We believe stuff. As a result of that, a Baptist pastor has to spend a lot of his time helping people get along too. And maybe that's true in all the denominations that name the name of Christ. 
It's just our, it's been my job. So, hey, I just want to tell you something. What you're hearing from, you're not hearing from a, a novice today, a plebe. This isn't my first round of this. I've thought, as I begin to write this, and I begin to think, wow, this is just flowing out of my heart. And I lean back in from my desk and thought, what's going on? As this stuff just flowed out of my heart to share with you. And I felt like that. I felt the hand of the Lord on my back as I wrote this. But I also feel like, wow, if anything ever comes out of my own heart and my own experience to help you, obviously rooted in the truth of God's word, which I'm going to show you, this is it. And so I want to talk to you about this today. What would, if you had an MRI of your soul, what would it reveal about your soul? What would, like, a spiritual MRI reveal about your soul if they put you in the spiritual tube and now God is going to say, this is what's in their depths of their soul. This is what they're really like. What would show up there? Well, I don't have a spiritual MRI. That would be scary, wouldn't it? But I, I do have a couple of diagnostic questions that I often, when I love people and I want to help them, I, I'll often ask them questions related to these two major questions. And they would be this. And maybe you can ask yourself and they'll be helpful to you. And, and the, I would want to know about a person what guilt they have and what injuries, what hurt they've had. What are they guilty of or what do they feel guilty for and what are they guilty of? What, what have they done that's wrong? And especially when the account is still open and it's not closed. I want to know that. If I want to know somebody and help them, I want to know their, about their guilt. And if I want to know somebody and I want to help them, I want to put a spiritual MRI, I want to know, and who has hurt you? Often we'll say to a person I'm talking to that I love and I care about and I want to know, what's the... What's the worst hurt that you've ever had in your life that you feel comfortable that you could tell me about? And, uh, if, and, and, and uh, that's a profoundly important thing to find out about people. You don't know people, really. You don't know a person unless you know the guilt that they've struggled with. And you don't know them unless you know the hurts that they've had. That's true about all of us. This would be a kind of a spiritual MRI. Now, I like to go another level deeper. This is really important. First question what guilt do you have? And, and related to that, and what have you done about it? How do you respond to guilt? What have you done? What, and usually people have a pattern. They respond to guilt, guiltiness or feelings of guilt, which can be two different things. They respond a certain way all the time. It becomes a part of who they are. How do they respond to that? That's super important about people. That would really be telling. If you knew that about yourself, how do I tend to respond to guilt? And then, of course, the huge thing is, how do I respond when someone has injured me? What I want to share with you today, if it's applied to a home, could be profoundly helpful in your home or applied to your work. It could make a huge difference in your work. It could actually mean a pay raise or saving your job. But the reason I'm telling you is because I like to imagine, I like to think and, and pray that, that Evangel, as a, as a family, would be a real, known and, and be sincerely a community of sincere and, and irresistible love. And to be that way, there's no way around. We can't just teach the right things and sing the right things and have good programs. We have to have people who take Jesus very seriously and who take following Jesus very seriously and say, even though people, even though I, I, when I hurt somebody else because, of, because I take Jesus seriously, I respond, I react I, the way God wants me to respond when I hurt somebody else. And, and when somebody else hurts me, 
I respond the way my King Jesus wants me to respond. Not the way my, my, my insides want to react, but the way my King Jesus wants me to react. What a place this becomes if all of the people who want to be known as Christians are, are living that out in their lives and in their homes and in this church. How could this not then be a very magnetic fellowship of people? The kind of place you kind of want to be around People really love you there. If they hurt you, they try to make it right. If they do wrong, they try to make it right. If I hurt them, they're so quick to forgive me. What a powerful thing. Of course, we, we want that for our families. And obviously, we want that. I might as well tell you, if you look in your Bible, it's Matthew 5. And this is some of the key teaching of Jesus, Matthew 5, 21. You'll see this. Um, the key, thing, key passage today, Matthew 5 and Psalm 139. But next week, as we go to the other side, what do you do when people hurt you? We're going to go to Matthew 18. Because it's interesting, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you hurt somebody else, in Matthew 18, it says, if somebody else hurts you. And so we're taking this right out of the teaching of our King, Jesus. This is what he would say if he were here today, physically speaking to you. Are you my followers? Then here's what I want you to do. I want you to take very seriously how you treat other people. And what you do, if you do hurt other people, I'm asking you, if you're my follower, if you're going to take my name, I want you to take that very seriously. And I will just say this right at the beginning. You don't have to look far to find the people that you've hurt. Like, don't look beyond the first group. Think about this. If you're married, who is the person that you've hurt and sinned against more than any other person on earth? Isn't it probably safe to say, might be your husband or wife? the person that you most need to make right the wrongs that you've done might be sitting right next to you right now. Might be your own husband or wife. The people that you live with and love, you don't have to draw the circle much farther. The persons that you've hurt the most in the world might very well be your son, your daughter, your dad, your mom. The people that are really near, you don't have to look very far. And I would certainly say, if we as as a church were covenanted together to follow the Lord, then we want to look within the church family are people that either are a part of the church family or recently have been a part of the church family and say, in that group right there, is there anyone in that group that I've hurt? Is there anyone in that group that I've hurt? Holy Spirit, show me. I want to take you seriously and take that seriously. God will always bless that kind of an attitude. He promises that he would. So we have this. It's super important, and you don't have to look far. It's here in the family of faith. I'm going to talk a little bit about why it's important how to do it, and then again, before I quit, a reminder of why it's important with some more stuff. That's kind of the structure of what I plan on saying. Why is this so important? Well, it's important if you don't do it, if you don't make right the wrongs, if when you've hurt somebody else, you don't make it right, you don't take them seriously, then you're going to obviously damage other people. It's like throwing acid on their soul. You hurt people. When you hurt people, that's what we call it, hurt, because it hurts. It damages them. It depreciates them. It's not taking them Like God, think about this, even an unbeliever is made in the image of God and has the dignity uh, that should be honored and respected. So when you say something wrong or have a wrong attitude or uh, or you talk behind somebody's back or you listen when you shouldn't listen to something, when you harm them, you actually do damage to them. So it's important that that damage is taken care of. It's another thing that happens, and it's important. You hurt yourself. You hurt them. You hurt you. You cannot, I cannot, treat somebody that's created by God with 
contempt or cool disregard without actually hurting myself. The Bible says in James, James said, a double-minded man's unstable in all of his ways. The idea of the word mind there is suke. It's the soul word. A person with a double soul is unstable in all his ways. The idea is like he's fractured. You ever seen or heard of a compound fracture? It's a horrifying thing to see. The bone sticking out, broken off, sticking outside the skin. Not really fun to talk about. I won't go into any detail when I'm ready to have to leave here. But that's the idea there in James. A person that says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I love Jesus Christ who died for the sins of the whole world, including my own. But I don't care that I hurt other people. Then you're a double-souled person. You're a, your soul is fractured and you're unstable. Spiritually, you've hurt your soul. We can't sin against other people without doing damage to them and without doing damage to us. You can't treat someone with sinful, cool disregard without doing damage to your own soul. You can't say something sinful against somebody else without doing damage to your own soul. You can't, uh, in your words or actions or attitudes, sin against or hurt somebody else without hurting yourself. That's why David in the penitent psalm, in Psalm 51, Psalm 32, it's like he's sick. He's soul sick. You can tell that when you read those psalms, like, whoa, what's wrong with him? He says, I have this unconfessed sin. Think of the terrible damage that David did, though he was a man after God's own heart. And though often he would sing these beautiful songs of intimacy with God, and yet the grievous sins that he had committed, then, he, then his, soul, his, own soul, his own soul was damaged. His own soul was sick because of it. And that's going to be the way it is with us. When I was a boy, I've told you probably more times than you want to hear about it, about that I was kind of a a punching bag. I was sort of, um, uh, in in a way, I was a lightning rod for bullying. Um, And uh, so it would be common that that I would have these experiences of getting off the bus and then having people get around me in a circle, and it was just not good. one, One day, and I remember all of them, you remember them in detail, and I'm good. I'm happy. Don't feel bad for me. God used that to, to help me a lot. And, and so I don't want you to feel bad for me. That's, that's not the point. And I had a really stable, wonderful home growing up with godly mom and dad. And God used it in my life to make me really tenderhearted to kids. And I often get a chance to minister to kids. Anyway, and they always get real quiet like you are right now. But here, here's the thing I remember even more than the times that I got hurt. I remember one time I, there was a boy on the bus and, and the other guys kind of goaded him he didn't want to fight me, but they kind of goaded him into starting a fight with me and challenging me and saying that after we get off the bus, we're going to meet in a certain alley and I can't get home without fighting this kid. And so the other guys kind of challenged this kid, who I could tell was reluctant to be involved in a fight, to fight me, and we had to fight. And it was just almost something that we couldn't avoid. I remember we were meeting in the alley and we had this fight. And then I went home, and, and that night, you know, we had dinner and everything was going on. I didn't think much about it. But then as I got in my bed at night and I thought about it, all I could see in my mind, and I can still see it today, was the face of this poor kid that I hit over and over again. In my mind, before I went to sleep, I could just see his sad, frightened, confused, humiliated face. And over and over again, I hit his face, hoping that the fight could just be over with and I could go home. That was one of the rare fights I won. He gave in. We went home. I want to tell you, I wish I could remember his name. I remember his face. I'll never forget it, but I don't know his name. 
If I could have coffee with him today, I would hurry to do that. If I could invest in him, if I could do something to make up for the injury that I gave to him. What's interesting to me is that I remember the details of being hurt, but the time that I hurt somebody else went to a deeper and a different place in my soul. And if you feel like, even if there's reason or reaction or whatever, that you hurt somebody else, and you feel like that's not going to hurt you, then you're deceiving yourself. Because that becomes a part of who you are. That becomes a part of your very soul. And the deepest part of you is fractured. The double-souled person is unstable, broken, fractured. That has to be repaired. There's a way to repair that. But don't ever think that you can hurt somebody else by talking about them, by hurting them, by, by taking something from them. You don't ever think you can hurt somebody else by treating them with cool disregard, by, by not being kind to them. Don't think you can hurt somebody else and not hurt them and not hurt yourself because you can't. And then there's something more. The evil one will use that to blackmail you. Isn't that right? Once you sin, this way it is with all sin, it's almost like Satan says, go, do it. It's not a big deal. The minute you do it, he goes, you didn't really do that, did you? Is that right? Has this been your experience? It's totally been mine. It, it, I have a friend, a, a, a dear friend that I talked to recently who's involved in public ministry. We had a, we had a really interesting conversation, and, and I have permission to tell you, that he said to me that he, he has a ministry, and he went through a really difficult time where he wondered if he would you know, like even be able to keep going forward in his marriage. And then, so, but his, but his ministry is to strengthen marriages, right? So if I was the devil, I would mess with a marriage of a guy whose ministry, he and his wife is to strengthen marriages, right? Wouldn't you? So he says to me, I have these schedules of these seminars I'm teaching on marriage, but I don't know if my own marriage is going to make it. I'm so in despair. Then I said, you just feel like there was just somebody sitting on your shoulder saying, what business do you have talking about marriage? Yeah. Who do you think it was the Holy Spirit doing that? Bet you it wasn't. I bet it wasn't. The Spirit, the Comforter, would come in. Say, be honest, be open, be humble when you do teach. But don't stop, don't give up. Satan will, will, will hold you hostage, will, will blackmail you with your sin. He'll, he'll remind you about, and even subconsciously, there'll be this little sense of like, you can't witness, you can't serve me. Why? Because you've hurt somebody and you haven't made it right. And so you see what happens when, when we hurt people and we don't make it right, then it damages others, it damages us, it gives the evil one an opportunity to blackmail us and to defeat us. And then it also, and this is the, a major thing that I'm talking about here in this application, is it damages the body of Christ. It depreciates the ministry of the church. None of you would come here and deface the property. None of you would do that. God forbid, none of you would harm this building. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't come here and try to, I don't want to say it, you know, do harm to this building. You wouldn't do that. And yet, isn't it true that when we sin against anybody else in our church then we've done something even worse than if we deface the building because we've hurt a person who's a part of the body of Jesus Christ. So this is a hard message to preach because I've been here in my eighth year and I've dealt with lots of people and I have this like thought, oh, people are going to be coming to me and lining up this week telling me how I've hurt them. So I don't want to do that. I'm just going to take a vacation this week. And no, I'm, I'm not, but... But if you guys would time that up, if you want to come, but if I hurt you, I do. I'm serious, sincere. I want to make that right. And, uh, and so, uh, 
Let me just remind you of those things. So, well, how do you do this? Well, I'll give you a little bit of a, just a, just a few things. You, you know these things, but let me give you a few way. What should we do then if you've hurt somebody else? Well, well, first of all, I would say, if you take Psalm 139, you meditate on all of Psalm 139. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible that talks about God's love for you. He's watched over your life and he's with you, all that through Psalm 139. But it ends with, search me and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. It ends with a call for self-examination. So what I'm going to say to you is examine yourself, or rather, if you will, ask the Holy Spirit to examine you to see if there's anybody that you've hurt. But kind of before you do that, do what's before that in Psalm 139. And remember, this is going to hurt. It's like God says, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. I love you. I think about you constantly. I want your good. This is good for you. David says in Psalm 139, God is with you. He loves you. He custom made you. He arranges the details of your life. And so you never want anything to come between God and you. So therefore, search me, O God, verse 23. Know my heart. Try me. See if there is any wicked way in me. You say, is it really appropriate to examine your heart for wrongdoing? Well, think about the example of the prodigal son. Jesus makes up a story to show us what it's like to get right with God. And what's the prodigal son do? It's really interesting. When you study that in Luke 15, he goes to the pig pen. I hope you remember the story. He's in the pig pen and he comes to his senses. He thinks. And he admits that he sinned. Verse 18 of chapter 15 of Luke, he admits, I've sinned and I've done evil. And then he recognizes unworthiness. He's going to make a speech to his dad and say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm unworthy. And then he's going to, um, he's going to be able to, he's going to put up with the reaction of his older brother without bailing out. It's like, I'm going to repent unless my older brother gives me trouble. Then I'm going to say, never mind, forget it. No, he still repents. And then he has to live long enough to live with the consequences of his sin and still be faithful, which proves his repentance was real. In other words, here's what I'm saying. You're, you have this little inner dialogue when you're confronted with you hurt somebody. And the inner dialogue is, well, it's not a big deal. And the inner dialogue is, well, they hurt me worse than I hurt them. And the inner dialogue is, well, that happened a long time ago before I was saved. Or the inner dialogue is, well, that's under the blood. I've asked for the Lord's forgiveness and it's forgiven. Or you're going to say, it's a big deal. Oh, I have to go talk to them? No, it's not a big deal. It's like, yeah, it's a big deal. You were thinking about it. What, what, what we're saying is, when Jesus said, here's the way I want you to respond, he gave a story. He, gave a, he, he created a little movie, a little picture. And it was of a guy who came to his senses and said, I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm willing to put up with any, I, I deserve any punishment that I get. Could I be restored in my fellowship with you? That's the picture he gave. So that's what we want to do. Do you see that? Does that help? So first of all, meditate on the love of God, his goodness, his sovereignty. This is going to be good for you, even though it's going to hurt. Second, ask God to search your heart for any wicked way with eternity in mind. Lead me in the way everlasting, because this is the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 say. So with eternity in mind, not here and now, but with eternity in mind, say, search my heart. Is there anybody I've hurt? I heard somebody say it this way. I thought it was helpful. Is there anybody in the world that could say you hurt them and you didn't try to make it right? Um, so that's a good, that's a good probably way to ask that. Acknowledge then when God brings a sin to your mind, then acknowledge it to God immediately and confess it to God. Say, I see it's sin. That's so important. 
So this should be happening all the time with us. When we were singing those songs this morning, there should have been a time of confession, of penitence, where every believer, how often do you sin? So every time, there should be a time when you acknowledge before God, God, I sinned. And I acknowledge that this hurt to this other person, these words that I said or said behind their back or did, or this thing that I did was wrong. And I acknowledge it, I admit it, it, it is sin, there's no excuse for it, God. And then you need to go. That's what the scriptures say. So now look in Matthew 5, um, and it talks about murder, and it talks about being angry, and it talks about calling names like Raka and you fool. And then it says, therefore, verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember your brother has something against you. So you're going to, to minister with a gift. You're going to bring a gift to God of worship. And isn't it interesting how you go to God? God, here I am. I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to worship you. And he goes, what about the way you treated my daughter? What about what you said about my boy? I love him. Then, well, let's on top of that, God, I just have a gift for you. He's like, let's keep the gift. Before you come and see me, go see him right now. So what Jesus said is, I want your gift. But before you give me your gift, I want you to go see your brother. Make it right. See that? This is the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way first. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Isn't that beautiful? Agree with your adversary quickly. While you're in the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge or the officer, and you're thrown in prison. You see where Jesus goes with this? He's saying, he's saying, take care of it quickly because your brother is going to become your adversary. In verse 44, he becomes your enemy. And he said, take care of that quickly because you're going to get thrown into prison. He's going to, whatever that means, he's going to lock you out of his life or you're going to have that, you don't want that damage your soul. Take care of it quickly. Jesus says, before you bring your gift, as important as a gift is in worship, before you bring it, go take care of that. Go. So go to your brother. Go to your sister and ask forgiveness. And it's just super hard. You want to minimize. You want to rationalize. You want to get, your mind is going to be playing tricks on you, telling you don't do this. You know, be tough. If you're not wired to do this emotionally, it's going to be really hard for you. Don't rationalize. Don't make excuses. Just go to the person. And it'd be better if you did it personally. And if your wording was very careful. And of course, if you, you know, if your wording has to be really careful, if you're not careful, it's like, look, if I did anything to hurt you, I'm sorry. That's not going to work, right? Or say like, hey, the other day when you said this and that and the other thing and I reacted. Well, no, no, you're, you're accusing them of sin. Don't do that. Sometimes you, you want to go to a person. When you go, you make it worse. You ever gone to a person and it got worse? There's some other reasons for that. One of the reasons is because when you went, maybe, maybe when you went, you really weren't going to ask forgiveness. You were going to kind of get another pound of their flesh. And by the way, of course, naturally, this is the way I reacted because of the harebrained thing you did. But would you forgive me? Well, they're not going to forgive you because you didn't, you know. And otherwise, they got business to take care of. They're not always going to forgive you immediately, too, because... That might mean in their spirit that they've got to make things right. So don't expect that they're immediately going to be reconciled, but you do have to go. If you want to have real relationships with people that you love and your family and the church, how can we not do this? There's no way. There's just no way. By the grace of God, all that tribe, 23 people in our family, you know, the, the, the children that married our kids and their kids and all of that, and the, the fiancés, as far as I know, today, there's not a, an unconfessed offense between me and them. 
that's because, not because I've never done anything wrong, but because I've gone to them and asked their forgiveness. And it's important to me because I want to be able to protect them. I want to be able to love them. I want to be able to influence them. I want to be able to help them. If I alienate them from me by hurt, then I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to hurt them. I'm going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt the family testimony. I'm going to hurt the testimony of Jesus Christ. I can't let that happen. Why? Because I take Jesus seriously. You can't take Jesus seriously and not take your hurts against other people seriously. It's not serious. You're not serious. If, that's, if you're not serious about your relationships with other people. Let me talk just a bit more about why it's important. By sharing with you the good that comes when you do, this will be better, right? This will be a happier part of the message. What happens when you do? Well, it's super hard to do it, right? A lot of you will put it off. You won't make things right. Start with your wife. Start with your husband. I'm, I'm telling you this. Some of you are sitting right here next to somebody you care about and you love. And their heart is just longing for you to do this. They're just longing for you to do this. Their heart right now is like, I wonder if they're ever going to do this because of the things they've said to me or the things they've done to me. I mean, it could start right there on your pew, right in your home on the way home. And you can say, sweetheart, you know, the other day I said this to you. It wasn't right. And God showed me while the pastor was preaching. He just showed me that what I said was harsh or what I said was wrong or I wasn't open or honest with you or whatever it was. I need you to forgive me. And they're, right now, they're sitting there and their heart is longing for that. You might have a child here or not here. And their heart is just like, it's my mom was said the angry words. And I want to forgive my mom because I love my mom. But she's hurt me so much with her angry words. And did mom ever say, you know, those angry words, I wish I could take them all back. I'm so sorry. God show me that I never should. I treasure you and I love you. And those angry words came out. I need to ask you, please forgive me for those angry words. Will you forgive me for those angry words? They, some of you are here, and your children are longing to hear those words. They're longing to know that you take Jesus so seriously. You take that, your relationship with them very seriously. And so what, what would happen in your home? What happens in a home when, when mom, when dad, when the kids start to behave toward one another? Can't you just see how that would be a, a very healthy, wonderful, happy, revived home? So it is in our church. As we be, and we're all churches do it. It's not like our church is especially bad. It's a good church with good people who take the Lord seriously. I know you do. I love you. I'm just saying that. And I do too, but I hurt people. And so if together we say, you know, I'm going to take Jesus so seriously that I'm going to go, then the sun's going to come out from behind the clouds when we do that with each other. And there's going to be the fragrance of Christ on that. And the face of Christ will be clearly seen in the lives of people when we do that. And so here's the, some of the things you will prosper, Brian. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, whoever covers his sin will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes it, will find mercy. It'll be good for you. That's one thing. Why is this important? Because of the good things that will come. One is we will prosper. Our hearts will prosper. Our families will prosper. When I was a boy, my dad wanted me to be really responsible with my money. And so I had a paper route. It was real early in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I collected for my paper route. And my dad knew exactly how much money I was going to get. He sat down and he got me to agree to a budget. He kind of manipulated me into this. But nonetheless, you know, because my budget would have been gum and gum and baseball cards. And, and then whatever was left over. But my dad says, no, you need to save for college. And so you need to have this for savings. And, of course, he says, you, you, want, a, you, know, you want a new bike? 
and you should buy a new bike. So here's what I think you should do. Go to Western Auto, lay away, lay away a bike. I think the payment was like $2.59 a week. That's how old I am. Anyway, so I would go to Western Auto. I would get my money. I would go to the savings and loan, and I would make my deposit, which my dad was going to check to see if I saved. And then I was going to go next door to the Western Auto, and I was going to make my payment on my bike. So every uh, Saturday, I would get all my collection, you know, done, and I would go Monday make that deposit. Now, the school year went on, and, you know, the winter turned to spring, and I began to do the math, and I realized that I was not going to be able to get my bike for summer. I just hadn't paid off enough that I would get my bike for summer. And I was a little disappointed. I began to do the math, and I realized I would probably get my bike sometime in the fall, which seemed like a real frowning providence to me. And so, um, but I remember that as we got in the last week of school, my dad pulled me aside. And he said, Kenny, I'm proud of you. You work so hard. You get up in the morning. You deliver those papers. You go out and you collect. I've been watching you, and I'm just really proud of you. And you save. You do just what I told you to do. You save every week. Here's what I want you to do. On the first day of summer, I want you to go to the savings alone, and I want you to withdraw from your account enough money to pay off your bike. And I want you to get your bike on the first day of summer. I remember that so fondly, just literally running to the bank and making that withdrawal and going next door and getting this beautiful bike, 26-inch, three-speed, three. <laughs> the rich kids in town had 10 speeds, but we totally lived on the other side of the tracks. So it wasn't going to happen in my lifetime. I got a three-speed Western Flyer. And I remember when I got on that bike, it was a gorgeous day in central Ohio, and the sun was out. And I got on that bike, and it rode so smooth. Nothing rattled on that bike. It was so fast. It was so smooth. I knew that chicks dug me then. I just knew it. I knew riding down the street that that women were attracted to me now. I was so happy. I was so full of joy. It felt like I had the air in my face. I was talking, I think it was Terry Gibson, pastor friend of mine. And I think it was him who said, when he was describing forgiveness, that when you ask forgiveness after you've done what's wrong, you're like a kid on your bike on the first day of summer. You don't have a care in the world, and your heart is filled with joy. Some of you are burdened. Some of you are burdened to the point of brokenness. Some of you are hurting. Your soul is damaged. It's just that simple. You need to go to people, maybe your husband, maybe your wife, maybe your kids, maybe a church member, and just say, you know, there might have been good reason, but you just take care of your piece of this. Go to them and get forgiveness and seek forgiveness. And if you have to, make restitution. The Holy Spirit might show you you need to pay them back something, but give forgiveness, make restitution, and it will be good for your very own soul. And there's something else. So you'll prosper. There's something else. The face of Christ will be clearly seen in, in your home. I was at a conference, and I sat next to a guy, and uh, the guy was sitting right here. Here's his story. He was raised in a really nice Christian home, really consistent, balanced, healthy parents, a very warm Christian home, but he made up his mind that he wanted to drink to drunkenness and smoke weed and sleep with girls and just made up his mind when he's fairly young and he's like teens, he's 16, he's 17 years old, and that's what he's going to do. And he just made up his mind. He's tired of all the religion. He's tired of all that. He's tired of people telling him what he can't do. So he starts bringing that into his home in a terrible way. He brings marijuana to his home, brings alcohol, girls slip, sleep, sneaking girls in at night. It's just over the top bad. 
And he fights with his parents, and he uses profanity, and it's just very, very bad. And finally, his parents, grieved as they could be, actually one night have to call the police, and they say to the police, come and get this boy out of our home. He can't be here anymore because of the damage that he's causing to the home. And so the police come to this fine Christian home, and they take this boy away, and he lives on his own. And for months and months and months, for over two years, he lived with disregard toward God, disregard to his parents. He bumps into a girl. He's working at Chili's, and he bumps into a girl that he's working with. And she's uh, also disobedient, but she's a little more responsible than he is, and he likes her. And so he begins to realize, well, this girl, we might have a future. She encourages him to be more responsible. So he says to her, probably what we ought to do is meet my parents. And this girl who doesn't know the Lord and wasn't raised in a Christian home goes home to meet his parents. And they have a meal together. At the end of the meal, the dad always did this. At the end of the meal, they would always have a meal together. Then they would stop and the dad would read a brief passage of Scripture. He'd make some comments about the Scripture. And they would pray together. He was so embarrassed of his dad doing that, you know, preaching at dinner and praying and so forth. But after a while, after a number of weeks, they'd gone home. They're walking out to the car. And she said to him, I really like your home. I really like your mom and dad. He says, why? He says, well, there's something about your home. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But, you know, your dad, he, he loves you. He cares about you. He reads the Bible. He talks about the Bible. It wasn't long after that they invited her to go to church, and she went to church. He didn't want to go to church at all. He says, I've done religion. I've done church. I'm not interested. She, she went to church and found the Lord. And then finally, God began to melt his heart. Did I tell you who this is? This is Billy Graham's grandson, two-inch of vision. He's the pastor of, remember D. James Kennedy, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church? He is the pastor of that church today. And why is it? Because when his girlfriend came home, she saw Jesus' face clearly reflected in their home. Now, how valuable would that be? For somebody to be drawn to Jesus because they saw a picture of him in the way you live in your home. How powerful would that be if when people came on this property, there was just a spirit, like, what is going on here? There was a spirit of Christ. Christ was seen clearly in the way that people treated one another. How powerful, how wonderful, how powerful would that be? The face of Christ. I been listening to a hymn this week that I love by the Gettys about the Holy Spirit. It's just a gorgeous hymn. We'll sing it next week. But, but there's a phrase in the hymn that just, just stirs my heart. And it goes like this. Let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road to sacrifice that in unity the face of Christ may be clear for all the world to see. That in unity the face of Christ would be clear for all the world to see. This world is so sad. They're so confused. They're so broken. They're hurting one another out there. They're hating one another out there. They despise one another out there. There's conflicts that they can't get untangled. So they should never come to church and find religious conflicts. They should come to church and see the face of Christ clearly shown. And the only way that can happen is that when we hurt somebody, 
we respond the way Jesus wants us to respond. And you can start with your husband. You start with your wife. You start with your kids. And you can do that right here. I heard a lady just recently, and I was trying to help her. And I was in her home, she and her boy, and we're having a really good talk. And we're talking about the Lord, talking about the things the Lord praying. And she says to me something really interesting. She says, you probably need to know I'm an agnostic. Like, like I couldn't tell because she was listening and she was open. And I was talking to her about the Bible and prayer and she was appreciated that. She says, you need to know I'm an agnostic. She goes, I don't know that I, I don't believe in God. She goes, I believe in you. And of course, you know, if you're like I am, your first reaction is, don't believe in me. <laughs> believe. But you know what she was saying? She was saying, I don't know if I know God yet, but I see something in you. Like, you see, that's it. That in unity, the face of Christ may be clear for all the world to see.